Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is Michael Lucas. I'm the author of The Oracle of Stambul which is a novel about a little girl who becomes an advisor to the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Chapter 1 Eleonora Cohen came into this world on a Thursday, late in the summer of 1877. Those who rose early that morning would recall noticing a flock of purple and white hoopoos circling above the harbor, looping and darting about as if in an attempt to mend a tear in the firmament. Whether or not they were successful, the birds eventually slowed their swoop and settled in around the city. On the steps of the courthouse, the red-tile roof of the Constanta Hotel, and the bell tower atop St. Basil's Academy. They roosted in the lantern room of the lighthouse, the octagonal stone minaret of the mosque, and the forward deck of a steamer coughing puffs of smoke into an otherwise clear horizon. Hoopoos coated the town like frosting, piped in along the rain gutters of the governor's mansion, and slathered on the gilt dome of the Orthodox church. In the trees around Jacob and Leah Cohen's house, the flock seemed especially excited, chattering, flapping their wings, and hopping from branch to branch like a crowd of peasants lining the streets of the capital for an imperial parade. The hoopoos would probably have been regarded as an auspicious sign, were it not for the unfortunate events that coincided with Eleonora's birth. Early that morning, the 3rd Division of Tsar Alexander II's Royal Cavalry rode in from the north and assembled on a hilltop overlooking the town square. 612 men, 537 horses, three cannons, two dozen dull gray canvas tents, a field kitchen, and the yellow-and-black striped standard of the Tsar. They had been riding for the better part of a fortnight with reduced rations and little rest, through Kilia, Tulsia, and Babadag, the blueberry marshlands of the Danube Delta, and vast wheat fields left fallow since winter. Their ultimate objective was Pleven, a trading post in the bosom of the Danubian plain where General Osman Pasha and 7,000 Ottoman troops were attempting to make a stand. It would be an important battle, perhaps even a turning point in the war, but Pleven was still ten days off and the men of the 3rd Division were restless. Laid out below them like a feast, Constanta had been left almost entirely without defenses. Not more than a dozen meters from the edge of the hilltop lay the rubble of an ancient Roman wall. In centuries past, these dull, rose-colored stones had protected the city from wild boars, bandits, and the Thracian barbarians who periodically attempted to raid the port. Rebuilt twice by Rome, and once again by the Byzantines, the wall was in complete disrepair when the Ottomans arrived in Constanta at the end of the 15th century. And so it was left to crumble, its better stones carted off to build roads, palaces, and other walls around other more strategic cities.
Had anyone thought to restore the wall, it might have shielded the city from the brutality of the Third Division, but in its current state it was little more than a stumbling block. All that morning and late into the afternoon the men of the Third Division rode rampant through the streets of Constanta, breaking shop windows, terrorizing stray dogs, and pulling down whatever statues they could find. They torched the governor's mansion, ransacked the courthouse, and shattered the stained glass above the entrance to St. Basil's Academy. The goldsmith's was gutted, the cobbler's picked clean, and the dry goods store strewn with broken eggs and tea. They shattered the front window of Jacob Cohen's carpet shop and punched holes in the wall with their bayonets. Apart from the Orthodox Church, which at the end of the day stood untouched, as if God himself had protected it, the library was the only municipal building that survived the Third Division unscathed, not because of any special regard for knowledge. The survival of Constanta's library was due entirely to the bravery of its keeper. While the rest of the townspeople cowered under their beds or huddled together in basements and closets, the librarian stood boldly on the front steps of his domain, holding a battered copy of Eugene O'Nagan above his head like a talisman. Although they were almost exclusively illiterate, the men of the third division could recognize the shape of their native Cyrillic, and that, apparently, was enough for them to spare the building. Meanwhile, in a small gray stone house near the top of East Hill, Leah Cohen was heavy in the throes of labor. The living room smelled of witch hazel, alcohol, and sweat, the linen chest was thrown open, and a pile of iodine-stained bedsheets lay on the table. Because the town's sole trained physician was otherwise disposed, Leah was attended by a pair of Tartar midwives who lived in a village nearby. Providence had brought them to the Cohen's doorstep at the moment they were needed most. They had read the signs, they said, a sea of horses, a conference of birds, the North Star in alignment with the moon. It was a prophecy, they said, that their last king had given on his death watch, but there was no time to explain. They asked to be shown to the bedroom. They asked for clean sheets, alcohol, and boiling water. Then they closed the door behind them. Every twenty minutes or so the younger of the two scuttled out with an empty pot or an armful of soiled sheets. Apart from these brief forays, the door remained closed. With nothing for him to do, and nothing else to occupy his mind, Leah's husband, Yaakov, gave himself over to worry. A large man with unruly black hair and bright blue eyes, he busied himself tugging at the ends of his beard, shuffling his receipts and packing his pipe. Every so often he heard a scream, some muffled encouragement to push, or the distant sound of gunshots and horses. He was not a particularly religious man, nor superstitious. Still he murmured what he could remember of the prayer for childbirth, and knocked three times three times three on wood to ward off the evil eye. He tried his best not to worry, but what else can an expectant father do? Just after twilight, in that ethereal hour when the sky moves through purple to darkness, the hoopoos fell silent, the gunshots ceased, and the rumbling of hoofbeats whittled to nothing. 
It was as if the entire world had paused to take a breath. In that moment, a weary groan choked out of the bedroom, followed by a fleshy slap and the cry of a newborn child. Then the older midwife, Mrs. Damacan, emerged with a bundle in the crook of her arm. Apart from a soft infant gurgle, the room was silent. Thank God, Jacob whispered, and he bent forward to kiss his daughter on the forehead. She was magnificent, raw, and glowing with new life. He reached out to take her into his own arms, but the midwife stopped him. Mr. Cohen, he looked up at the tight line of her mouth. There is some trouble. Leah's bleeding had not stopped. She was gravely weak. Just a few hours after giving birth, she succumbed. Her last word was to name her newborn daughter. And as she spoke it, the sky opened. It was a downpour unlike anyone in Constanta had ever seen. An endless cavalcade of rain and thunder. In torrents, waves, and steely sheets it strangled fires, erased roads, and wrapped the town square in a blanket of wet smoke. Through the worst of the storm, the hoopoos concealed themselves in entryways in the hollows of dead trees. For their part, the men of the 3rd Division rode south towards Pleven, their plunder lashed like spider nests to the backs of their horses. It rained for four days straight, during which time Mrs. Damacan and the young woman, her niece, cared for the newborn child. Leah was buried in a mass grave with a dozen or so men killed trying to defend their property, and Jacob filled the house with whales. By the end of the week, refuse clogged the harbor, and the town square was strewn with soggy cinders. Life, however, must continue. When the clouds finally retreated, Jacob Cohen took a coach to Tulsia and sent two telegrams, one to Leah's sister in Bucharest and the second to his friend and business partner in Stambul, a Turk by the name of Monsef Barkus, who had recently been granted the title of Bey. The first telegram informed his sister-in-law of the tragedy and requested any assistance she could provide. The second message was sent at the behest of Mrs. Damacan and recommended her and her niece for any open positions Monsef Bey might have in his household. As with most of the Tartars living in the villages around Constanta, Mrs. Damacan and her niece planned to leave soon and seek a new life in Stambul, which would be more hospitable to Muslims. In the meantime, they agreed to stay with Jacob and assist him as best they could. Monsef Bey's response arrived a few days later. In it, he indicated that he would be glad to meet Mrs. Damacan, and in fact, was in search of a new handmaid. The reply to Jacob's other telegram came a week later, in the form of Leah's older sister, Ruxandra. It was six o'clock in the evening when her carriage pulled up to the harbor. An angular woman, in traveling clothes and a dark green felt hat, Ruxandra was possessed of a sharp nose, a weak chin, and a mole in the middle of her left cheek, which looked like the tip of a volcano on the verge of eruption. Portmanteau in her left hand, and a sweaty, crumpled telegram in her right, she disembarked, paid the driver, and began up the hill to her brother-in-law's house. Mounting the front steps of the Cohen's house, 
Ruxandra adjusted her hat and peered back at the sheen of bird droppings coating the front walk. She glared at the flock of purple and white hoopoos perched in the plane tree overhead, then turned back to the door and knocked. When no one answered, she knocked again, leaning forward to listen for any stirrings inside. Again there was no answer. Not one to wait outside in the cold, she straightened her hat and let herself in. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.